Uh, we are blessed today. We're going to have a guest speaker uh, to come and pick up on our series in Revelation. And it's our brother Julian Russell, uh, which uh, most of you hopefully are very familiar with. Um, you know, Julian is going to be leaving us uh, at the end of this calendar year and going back to his homeland of the Bahamas. And um, he will be an official home church missionary uh, for us. And so we think, well, how's he a home church missionary if he's going home? And um, it's not really going home. Uh, he is going back. He's being sent uh, to a land that is where he was born, where he was raised, um, but has changed dramatically. And uh, we feel like it's a real privilege for us to be able to send uh, Julian back uh, to represent the kingdom, uh, to be a representative of PCPC, uh, but also for his country. And unless you have uh, never had a fist pump from Julian, then you're not going to really miss him. Unless you have never really enjoyed just having a meal with him, then you're not going to really miss him. If you've never been in the hospital and had Julian come and pray for you, then you're not going to really miss him. If you've not been involved in urban missions and seen all the things that God has done in and through him, then you're not going to really miss him. But I'll tell you, as a church, we're going to miss him greatly. And uh, I had the distinct privilege one time that uh, I was the pastor on call that day, and they said to me, Pat, nobody's been out to see this woman out in Plano. And so I drove out there and saw her at the hospital and visited with her for a while, and then I finally asked her, I said, would you mind if I prayed for you? She said, can you pray like that big black man? <laughs> I didn't stand a chance after that. And the other thing that, that Julian does is he freely declares himself as tall, dark, and handsome, which means I stand here today as short, pale, and homely, okay? But um, I really want us uh, as a group this morning um, to welcome Julian, to have your attentive ears to him. And I do want to just say, fellas, uh, this man is worthy of our financial support uh, as he heads to the Bahamas. And if you haven't already partnered with him, I really would like to encourage you to do that. Um, the ministry that's going to evolve in the Bahamas is one that we as a men's group are wanting to help support. And really, there could be a time that within the next calendar year that we are sending teams of men to go and minister on a very broad basis. And so uh, I think it's going to be a delightful privilege for us. And we want to partner with our brother. So, Julian, come on up and let me just say a prayer for you. But let's welcome Julian this morning. Thank you all. Lord Jesus, would you please use your servant this morning to bring truth to us, that the ripple effects of that might have a great impact upon families and upon your kingdom. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pat. Thank you, Pat, and good morning. One of the things Pat didn't say was, I am the proud husband of Christiana. That's my greatest claim to fame. 
Um, I am honored to be here this morning and I thank God for each of you. I thank God for this church. Uh, my wife and I, we left 23, almost 24 years ago. And um, we really fell in love with PCPC and, and the people in this city. And that's the story of my life. I've been a sojourner for the, since 1990, since really 1980. And we fall in love with a place and God takes us from the place to another place. And so here we are in love with PCPC, in love with Dallas and being sent back to a place that we used to know. Um, and it's gonna be extremely challenging for us, but with your prayers and help, we know the Lord's gonna make a great blessing out of this miserable life. I invite you to listen to me carefully. I'm from the Bahamas, I'm from the islands, and we are studying a book by a brother from the islands, amen? John is on an island, and, uh, and he's giving a panoramic view of God's intents and purposes for the people of God who are in deep weeds. Um, I, I am delighted to represent Chad and Paul in some small way. And uh, today we're looking at finding hope in affliction. Last week, Paul talks about affliction and, and uh, comfort in affliction. But today I want us to, to look at finding hope in affliction. I want to pick up on that. It's a direct link between uh, the seven seals that he spoke of last week and the seven trumpets of today. These plagues convey meaning to the seven churches and they convey a kind of meaning that John's audience understood far better than we do. Richard Barkham says, John has taken some of his contemporaries' worst experiences and worst fears of war and natural disasters. John has blown them up to apocalyptic uh, proportions and cast them in biblically elusive terms. In essence, John is speaking the language of his audience, but he's doing it in such a way that he's, he's instilling the fear of God within uh, the seven churches to whom these letters are sent. And so the plagues mentioned in this text connect the first century reader to Old Testament events. So these are not just random acts that, that some brother on the island under great stress dreamt of or just had this vision. God is purposeful. And what, when we read this text, we, we see allusions to the fall of Jericho under Joshua. Remember, they marched around and on the seventh day they blasted the horn, the, uh, blasted the trumpets. And they were to keep silent on the, seventh, uh, on the seventh day until they just let out this loud blast. It also resembles the army of locusts in the book of Joel. Or Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 when, when, when the Lord God comes down to visit his people and there's thunderings and lightnings and earthquakes and great phenomena because of, the, uh, of God's presence among his people. And of course, these plagues in Revelation 8 and 9 re resemble the plagues that are described in the Exodus in Egypt. What I want us to see, friends, as, as we think of finding hope and affliction, is that some situation in life at times offers us only two options. We either panic, or as the men of God, we pray. That's life. Stuff happens. The children of Israel found themselves by, uh, by the banks of the Red Sea with hardly a moment to celebrate their newfound freedom from a 
Egyptian bondage. And to their shock and horror, there's this advancing army of Egyptians just coming at them and they had nowhere to go. There's the, there's the sea in the front of them and there are mountains on either side. Moses records that, that these people reacted instinctively. They panicked. Like Israel, you and I tend to experience panic attacks when we are faced with situations that are understandably overwhelming. Because of Christ, however, God's people can pray. God's people can offer prayers that would make the devil shudder. Cameron Thompson writes, there comes a time in spite of our soft modern ways when we must be desperate in, in prayer, when we must wrestle, when we must be outspoken, shameless, and importunate. Brothers, we're in a, we a dogfight in the 21st century. So, as I said earlier, these, these judgment in, in, uh, in 8 and 9, these trumpets are related to the seals that Chad spoke of last week. And when you have time, I, I, wish I, had a, I wish I had done a PowerPoint to show you, but I'll just describe it quickly. There's some structural similarities between the seven seals and the, and the, and the seven trumpets. There, in the seals, there are four seals, and there are four seals, and there are four trumpets, and they're all grouped together. And then the fifth seal depicts the saints in heaven crying out to the Lord under the altar, while the fifth trumpet depicts life on earth from a heaven's perspective. So the saints are up crying out, and the unsealed, the unbelievers are on earth, just giving God the middle finger. Terrible judgments follow the sixth seal. Terrible judgments follow the sixth trumpet. And with the seventh trumpet, as well as the seventh seal, there's this interlude. There's this moment of silence. Now, the opening of the seals brought comfort last week, we learned, to the people of God. But the blasting of the trumpet brings woes to the people on earth. Now, in Old Testament times, trumpets sounded an alarm against the enemies of God's people. As I said, when, when Joshua blew, Jericho fell. Trumpets also signaled the time for Israel to march in the wilderness. They were gathered in, in, in the wilderness, and, and, and the priests would blow the shofar or the, or the trumpet, and they knew it was time to march. It also signaled uh, a time to keep festivals. And there were numerous festivals within the life of the, uh, of the, of the church in the wilderness. Trumpets announced Rosh Hashanah, or the Jewish New Year. And it also announced the year of Jubilee. It was a signal from the Lord. In the New Testament, there's only one time that we hear of trumpets. And we know that event, and it's to come. The trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up with him. And we'll meet him in the middle of the air. Amen? Derek Thomas notes that together these images of trumpets create expectations of war, a new beginning, or final release from captivity, or of cleansing from sin and its consequences. 
The trumpets signal the dawning of the kingdom of God in all its finality and all its fullness. God is about to act on behalf and for the benefit of his people. But they also depict a series of catastrophes that will repeatedly occur throughout human history. So don't try to read this text thinking, okay, yeah, this trumpet goes to that period of time or this goes to that period of time. No, John is saying this is a recurring series of catastrophes that the earth will experience and the people on this earth will experience because of the sovereign redemptive purposes of Almighty God, the Creator and King. And so we look to the text. And while we are talking about prophecy, the thing that John brings out clearly in, uh, at the very beginning of chapter 8 is the power of prayer. And I don't want you to miss this, brothers. I don't want you to miss this. It's the power of prayer. Uh, in chapter 6, remember the souls of, uh, under the altar, they're crying out, How long, O Lord? Vindicate us, please, God. They've been crying out to God. Listen to how he describes the opening of this vision in, in verse 1 of chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw seven angels who, who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightnings, and an earthquake. So the prayers go up. And not the blessings come down, but the judgments come down. And the prayers are answered because there is this, uh, there is, uh, there's this thundering and, light uh, and lightning and earthquakes and noise which are similar to the, to the uh, theophany in Exodus chapter 19 when the Lord's on Sinai. This is God's approval. He hears the cries of his people throughout the history of humanity. And so I want us to see the power of prayer. Craig Keener says, The suffering of God's people invite his intervention, even if his time is not always our time. The old Negro spiritual says he's an on-time God. He might not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time. Can I get an amen? amen. The prayers of God's people in this vision are integral to the downfall to the enemies of the gospel. I want you to get this. You and I are living in a world that if you were to try to use worldly tactics to survive, you will fail. You are living in the 21st century at a time when men are so hardened and, and so hard that if you were to approach life from a purely uh, physical or emotional perspective, you will miss it. And so John, more than anything else, is calling us as the people of God to recognize the power of prayer. He's echoing his brother James who says the fervent effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. So I need to, I need to, I need to deal with the elephant in the room and this scripture says there's silence in heaven. And, and this is the most difficult passage in, in Revelation because it's, it's mysterious. I mean, what's the silence? And I really don't know, but Here's what I think. I don't think it's the absence of women, okay? I don't think that's a lot of people. I, I don't think that's what it is. No, it's, no, there, there are women up there. 
but I, I, I think this is a, I think this is a deeply dramatic pause. So before creation, there was silence. Okay? And before the flood, there was silence. Before the coming of Christ, there was 300 years of silence. In essence, it seems as if when, in, in, and, and I'm thinking in the human, and this is as far as I could go. So stuff is happening on earth and heavens is, heaven is fully aware of it and God arouses. You know that scripture says, let all mortal flesh keep silence because God is in his sanctuary. He arouses and everybody, everybody up in heaven go, uh-oh. You know, uh-oh. And so they back away because stuff is going to happen. And so in those moments of silence in your lives, my brothers, when it seems as if God is not speaking to you at all, know that he is not silent because he dislikes you or he is impotent or he's incapable or he is ignorant or he's unaware. Know that it is a pause for the almighty God to unleash all of his divine godness upon you and upon the situation that you face. Man, I, I wish y'all were Baptist folk. I'm just teasing. Somebody told me in, uh, in the PCA, when people really get it, they start writing. They don't say amen. <laughs> but but, but permit, me, permit me a few minutes of, permit me a few seconds of testimony. I experienced silence from God. I experienced silence from God. I, I experienced a time when I was convinced that God was against me. I was utterly convinced, because after, after a month of stuff, you know, you, you, you could wrestle with a month of being paralyzed, but seven months of it, and you, and you, you lost your job, and, you, and you're losing your faith, and you're losing everything else, and you ain't got no money, and you can't walk, and your wife is pregnant, and I'm too ashamed to let people know that I'm this sick, and God's not answering prayers, man, it was silent. It was silent. But like the night when Jesus was born, in that silence, one day the Lord just burst through in my life. And that day I told the Lord, God, if you get me out of this, after about three months of not talking to God anymore, I said, God, if you get me out of this, I'll do anything for you. Brothers, I don't know where you are. Some of you might be in a situation where you really swear that God's not listening to you. But I can assure you, I can assure you, the Lord knows every detail of your life. He knows what you're going through. And he's silent for a purpose. And when he answers you, be ready for it. Job wasn't ready. <laughs> but he got blessed anyhow. And so may the Lord bless each of you. If you're going through it right now, may he bless you in the midst of, your, in the midst of his silence. Because that is, what, that is what is about to happen in Revelation 8. So there's silence, and then all hell breaks loose. And so we look in the first six verses, I call it the power of prayer. And then in verse 7 through 12 of chapter 8, we see divine judgment upon created order. And the sufferings and the judgment are unleashed upon a third of creation. God unleashes destruction and plagues upon the earth, upon the sea, and upon the sky. And these plagues are precursors to the final judgment. And these are reminiscent of the plagues in Egypt, remember? 
Moses told Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh said, I don't believe in it. So nine plagues came upon Egypt. And God told Moses, you know, Moses, I know, I know it's a little frustrating for you. I know you've been preaching and these guys ain't been listening. But I'm doing this final plague. You kill the Passover lamb, sprinkle the blood on the altar, because tonight I'm going to pass through this place, and I'll pass over you if I see the blood. And if I don't see the blood, every firstborn male of man and beast will die tonight. That's the kind of God we got. And so the final plague, Egypt relents, lets the people of God go. And in Egypt, the children of Israel understood and the Egyptians understood that every plague that was sent from Yahweh was a destruction of their idols. So the frog, whatever, whatever they idolized, God just wiped it off the face of the earth. God says, I'm bigger than you. I'm God and there's no, none other but me. And the children of Israel rejoice in the fact that God displayed his mighty power. Those calamities were controlled in heaven then and what's happening now is controlled in heaven also. The judgment that is upon creation, Derek Thomas says, that the main focus on the judgment is that creation itself experiences God's divine wrath. Something has gone radically wrong with the created order. Guys, this is not what God intended for us. This is not all there is. Let's not despair. This is, this is not right. Things are not right. And God wants them to be right. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 21 through 22, that the whole creation is groaning because of the curse that is upon the earth. The whole creation, earth, sky, and sea. Because everything is twisted and everything is misshaped. And then beginning at verse, chapter, one of verse, uh, chapter 9 and verse 1, we see the plagues come and they, they harm the creation. But then we see a supernatural horde of tormentors coming out from the bottomless pit. All hell breaks loose and mankind is affected. In verse 1 of this passage, the angel is described as an eagle and he cries out, Whoa! Whoa! He gives three woes. This is bad news. What he is saying is bad news. But the fact that, uh, you know, you, 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 you could trust the message and you could also trust the messenger in this one. This is, this is bad news. Because every time there's, there's eagles, <clears throat> there are eagles mentioned in the Old Testament prophecy, the, the eagle symbolize he's an omen of evil. He's the bearer of bad news. He has nothing good to say. In the Old Testament prophecy. You know, Rome had the eagle as their sign in John's day. And John's telling the Romans who are holding him, host, uh, persecuting him on the island of Patmos, man, the, the best you have to offer is bad news. You got nothing good to offer us because we are sojourners. America, the symbol of this great country is the eagle. And I'm speaking to someone who's not from this country, who lives in another country. Man, America is good news to, this to, to the Bahamas. I go places in West Africa and I go places all over the world and, 
and what the Lord is doing through men like you and families that you represent is good news to so many people. And it's bad news to people who don't do right. You with me? I mean, Osama bin Laden, that's bad news to him. And those, brother, those dudes in Al-Qaeda and, and ISIS and them and, and folks who try to oppress people, man, you could expect the might of the eagle upon you. And so may the Lord protect and preserve this great nation for many years to come. That's my prayer for you guys, in Jesus' name. And so this is bad news for the people on the earth. And John tells us that there's a star that fell from heaven and was given the key to the bottomless pit. Early on in chapter 1 of Revelation, he, wrote, he, he writes this letter to the seven stars, churches. Star in Revelation 9 is a fallen angel. Anybody knows any fallen angel in Scripture? Anybody knows his name? Lucifer, Satan, Mephistopheles, whatever he is. But he has been, he has been, he has been thrown out of heaven and he's been given the key to this bottomless pit, to this abyss. And I want us to see the spiritual dynamics at work that are going on. So a fallen angel has been given the key to the very portals of hell. And all kinds of weird creatures come out of this. These ain't natural, these ain't natural folk. These folk, they, they got women's hair and they got, and, and you, listen how John describes them. Uh, he calls them locusts. They, um, the, verse 3, they had the power of scorpions. They didn't harm the grass. They were allowed to torment them for five months. That's how long insects last, by the way. If you're trying to worry about these figures and you're trying to put them into perspective. Um, in appearance, they were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads would look like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Verse 8. And their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and sting like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. I mean, these are some hideous creatures. And they're tormenting. And they're killing a third of people. And they're tormenting the rest who are not sealed. This is not physical, guys, because locusts don't eat meat. You with me? So this isn't locusts coming on the earth to eat the earth. Locusts are, are vegetarians. These are demonic, supernatural beings under the headship of the God of this world who Paul declares. And so Paul tells us things like... Uh, um, in chapter 2 and verse 1 that you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the powers of the air and he says in, and that's Ephesians 2 in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 he says for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and against rulers of the darkness of this age what I'm trying to say to you friends is when you see strange things going on in this world when you see people acting in a certain way I want you to realize that these are not naturally these are not natural things going on. The judgment of God has been unleashed upon the people who, don't, who, who reject the gospel and they're capable of doing things that will blow your mind. My daughter teaches kindergarten and she tells me some of the things that her kindergartners are already aware of. I mean, I was shocked. 
I mean, there's stuff happening in the minds and hearts and in the, and in the, and in the bodies of people that would blow you off the face of this earth. They can't be human. I mean, how, how, could, how could five men decide to, to rob a, an old woman and, and, and then shoot or shoot him? I mean, that, that's demonic. That's satanic. Because these tormented people who have been influenced by the sovereign will of God in allowing the enemy to unleash his power on this earth, these people ain't thinking like humans anymore. As a matter of fact, William, William Hendrickson says, Here are the demons robbing men of all light of all true righteousness and holiness, joy and peace, wisdom and understanding. These are incomprehensible demonic powers. They've been unleashed into human history. And they're simultaneously both attractive and repulsive. And it's all by the sovereign purposes of God. I mean, that's what sin does to us, friends. Sin appears nice to us, and then, and then it destroys us. Can I get an amen? Unbelievers, the unsealed, are the victims of this horde from hell. And thank God it's only five months. That's the doctrine of total depravity. Not, you know, it's, it's not called um, ultimate depravity. It's total depravity. God, there, there's a limit to how evil we could be. Thank God for his restraining power. But where's the judgment in this? The judgment in this, my friends, is that the people on earth, the people who reject the gospel, who are being harassed by these demonic forces, who are being killed by these demonic forces. The judgment is that these people, uh, they don't want God. They reject God knowingly. And they're living under the rem and dominion of the evil one. And they're free to do anything they want to do. That's their judgment. Not even, not even hell itself could frighten them to Jesus. I mean, they take kids out of the hood and put them in, in prison overnight or for weekends and men in prison, inmates scream at them and, and you think that would change them. And those kids get out of there and, without, and, and within a matter of two weeks, they back to their old nature. Listen, we, can't, we, are, we are not saved by anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ. And so despite the wickedness and the evil that is coming upon us and people are, oh, 9-11 and other stuff happening, folks will not change. They will not run to Jesus of their own free will. They would rather choose evil because we are naughty by nature. It's divine judgment. And sadly, there's no repentance. There's no repentance. Beginning at verse 13, we see this divine judgment. These horses, they come upon the earth and, and these riders and the power is not in the riders, the power is in the horses. The Bible says men love darkness rather than light. They refuse to acknowledge their sinfulness and turn to God who's made himself known in the gospel. And they reject the, the law. Look at verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. That's the first commandment. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or, or their thefts. That's the rest of the, the Ten Commandments. And God gives these people up. Like Pharaoh in the Old Testament, their hearts become hardened. So praying will give you hope in this life, friends. 
Because if you, if you think you can scare your children or scare your neighbors or, or reason with people on this earth to get them to see that Jesus is the only way, you will fail. That's why, I, that's why I took you to Egypt in the beginning. Because Pharaoh, all of the stuff that happened to Pharaoh, it didn't phase Pharaoh one bit. All of the stuff that's going on around us, it's not going to phase people one bit. And so we find hope in prayer. Here's what I mean. We sitting in this room, we believe that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, omnipotent, and all these great things. And he displayed and demonstrated his awesome power in the Old Testament to the children of Israel as he wiped out Egypt and the Pharaoh. And here the children of Israel on the banks of the Red Sea, just, just relishing in the fact that we are finally free. And to this shock and horror, the army is coming. I mean, you would think after all that God has put upon them, all the judgment that he's put upon them, you would think that Egypt would be terrified to touch the people of God. Brothers, you may think that after all that God has done for you and how much he's delivered you over and over again, you would think that the devil would give you a break, that the devil would come to his senses and say, I can't touch these people. They belong to God. No, he doesn't work like that. And he's relentless and he keeps coming and he keeps coming and he keeps coming and he keeps coming. And, and what happens is you and I, we tend to lose hope. Because we begin to believe rationally that the God who we believe is all-powerful somehow is incapable of taking us through this situation that we face. And we lose hope. But I beg you in the name of Jesus, I beg you in the name of Jesus, don't panic. Pray. Pray prayers that will make the devil shake in his boots that will make him wet his pants. May the Lord encourage you this day. I don't know what you're facing, brothers, but I am convinced that we are sojourners. We are disconnected from a lot of things. We are enemies because of who we align ourselves with. We are the silent minority. But the God who has called you unto himself is the same God who is in control of everything on this earth. The seventh trumpet will indicate the final judgment. It's not over yet, but rest assured, it's as good as done. Amen? Amen. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord strengthen you. May the Lord give you hope in the midst of all your trials. And may the peace of God, which passes all knowledge and understanding, guard your hearts and minds until the day when Christ Jesus, your Savior, your Redeemer, shall come for you personally. Until then, resist the devil. Look to God, and he will flee from you. In Jesus' name, amen.